Hello and welcome to the TY1 podcast. We're going to discuss parenting, the Kardashians, and history is crazy. Hello, my name is Donica. I'm with Sarah, and today we're going to be talking about strict parents and the difference it makes to their children if they're strict or not. I think that the kids with strict parents are more likely to lie to their parents about little things to avoid arguments or trouble. I think there's no trust between the kids and parents. These kids will probably be more afraid of missing out on things and will be less likely, less experienced in the world. Whereas kids with not-so-strict parents could be less worried and stressed about things. They'll probably get along better with their family and less likely to lie to them. I think that strict is a very broad term. If parents are strict, I'm assuming that means they are very restrictive and unfair towards their their children. And I'm assuming that not-strict parents are parents that are very lenient and easy on their kids. With that said, I believe, obviously, that whether your parents are strict or not plays a big role in the person you will grow up to become. I think a certain amount of rules and hardship are necessary in raising a child, but as in all aspects of life, balance is key. That being said, kids need a widening freedom and independence in order to become their own person and figure out who they are. Next up, we're going to talk about the Kardashians. Keeping up with the crazies. Chris is the most talented as she's marked her family as useless children. Kylie Cosmetics. The 19-year-old owns a $900 million cosmetic company, one of the world's youngest self-made billionaires. She exploited youngsters' insecurities and gave them, impression, gave them the impressions that the makeup line would fix all their imperfections. In fact, it would just make, take their money in exchange for overpriced products. Keeping up with Kardashians. It's all staged and scripted. It popularises gossip and petty drama. They claim it portrays realistic family. Conclusion. <laughs> the Kardashians have given unrealistic expectations of what, the women's, of what women's bodies and lifestyle should be, and that you can only be happy if you have a big bank account and a fat ass. <laughs> <laughs> and now for History is Crazy. Deadlier than the real thing. <coughs> the D-Day rehearsal was, in fact, much more deadlier than D-Day itself. For you see, the British and American commanders at the time were ridiculously incompetent in their execution of the exercise. Before the troops even got onto the, you know, troop transports, the my generals ordered artillery bombardment on the beaches. But little did they know that this bombardment would happen at the exact time their own troops would get onto the beaches, causing massive casualties. Of course, that then it turns out it didn't really matter, for you see, the troop transports didn't make it close enough to the beaches. And as a result, many of the troops are forced to swim. And by swim, I mean drown. Thousands drowned in this unnecessary act, unnecessary exercise. And in turn, numbered, casualties numbered in the thousands. And in return, it was one of the more, more or less disturbing accounts of wartime exercises, so to speak. The Pope is dope. In the medieval times, Italy was divided into numerous city-states. And in these city-states, there were two factions developing. One was the Pope, who lived in Rome and controlled a massive swath of land in central Italy. And in the north was the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, a German king who calls himself the Holy Roman Empire for prestige and purposes. Ironically, he was since Germany was the only place Rome didn't actually conquer, it was very, very unlegitimate. 
Anyhow, these two Italian states that are quite small, basically one sided for the emperor, who in turn would support them with his own imperial troops, while the other city supported the pope due to the fact that he is closer and they think he's awesome. Now, the imperial city, who loved imperials and his emperor, decided that enough was enough and marched into the pope town. And to show that they were superior, they took a bucket from a well. Now, due to the fact that it was a bucket, everyone assumed that it would just blow over and it was a big mockery. But then, of course, they sent the troops after the bucket. That's when things got a bit crazy. For you see, they tried sieging each other out over, over the next course of the war. But eventually, the Imperials came up with a cunning plan. Basically, while the troops were gathered upon a river, they, which they thought was impassable, they, during the night, crossed silently before gathering up on the side of the river and launching a big surprise attack, forcing them to run back to their city, where they unfortunately had to surrender. And throughout, throughout all of this, the the empire was given its support and the pope was actively condoning the Italian city. But in the end, the imperials won out. And to show their superiority, they put their excellent prize, one magnificent bucket, into their cathedral, where it remains today, still visited by tourists. War of the Emus. Australia's War on the Birds. After World War I, troops returning to Australia were given land by the government to help keep up the economic output of the country. Then, of course, the Great Depression happened. For you see, the Australian basis dollar on the English pound, and the English pound suddenly wasn't backed by the gold standard. And to make it simple, imagine this. Australia's car is broken down. England was there handily. Australia asked England to give them a hitch to the nearest garage, and so England happily obliged. Then England proceeded to jump off a cliff with Australia with them. So yeah, that was the economic situation of the time there. And to make matters worse, the farms that happened to be given to the veterans were poorly fenced, and these birds called emus, which are as large as ostriches, suddenly found a new food source available, so they broke into the farms and proceeded to ruin them. The farmers were outraged, and they decided to go to the minister. Not the minister of agriculture, they, they taught. No, they were going to the big guy. They were going to the minister of defense. Or uh, historians have later tried to figure out whether they meant defense or defense. Anyhow... Anyhow, the Minister of Defense responded by sending in troops armed with machine guns after the emus. Unfortunately, after ten rounds, the machine guns jammed and the emus got away. They tried then to put a machine gun on, arm on a car and try to outrun and shoot the emus. The car tripped, crashed, and blew up. Another one for the emus. And finally... They said enough was enough, and they finally sent another massive wave of soldiers to, with machine guns to eliminate the emu tread once and for all.
10,000 rounds were used in this final attack, and over a thousand emus were dead. Unfortunately, the press had now lost its interest in this emu war, and was ultimately declared a victory for the emus, because shortly after, farmers developed better fences. Julie, French cross-dressing lesbian who sang for the king. During the medieval times, there was an unusual episode involving a maid named Julie. Julie grew up in the palace of Versailles, the, the king's palace. She, her father worked in the, in the stables, which man- administered all the king's horses, used in hunting trips and diplomatic envoys. As she grew up, she learned how to read, write, all the basic stuff to promote herself into the court, her father was thinking. Her father married her off to a governor of of one of France's territories. But Julie fell in love with this duelist, a demonstration duelist, who, in turn, got into trouble in in the king's palace and, unfortunately, had to flee So Julie strapped on some men's clothes and followed him. And they began a massive, well, barrage of demonstrations and illegal dueling, illegal doing demonstrations, so on and so forth, across the country, sustaining their lifestyle. Eventually, Julie tired of her teacher and and friend and lover and moved on. There, she fell in love with another maid, but her parents, unfortunately, did not like a lesbian relationship, uh, so they sent their daughter to the, co- to the covenant or the, to the nunnery or whatnot. Julie was not going to give up, so she had a cunning plan. First, take the vows and become a nun. Second, get the body of a recently deceased nun. Third, put the body in her lover's chamber. Fort, light the covenant on fire, five, profit. <laughs> and then she proceeded with her girlfriend to do the exact same thing as before. Eventually, her girlfriend tired and went back home to a rather shocked family who thought who were dead. Julie was charged with burning down the covenant, but she didn't attend her own trial. Eventually, word got to the king of France, who was amazed by Julie's story. For you see, he was in a bit of a crisis at the time. A church supported the monarchy's power, but the divine right to rule from God, while partnering with the the monarchy with the church, also made them rivals for the same power. After all, the king was appointed by God. Shouldn't he have the church's property and all that? And so he realized something. All the critics of his monarchy were turned their wrath towards a church if he funded their books, novels, paintings, all the literary responses, and directed at the church. What's more, it became it was soon revealed that his brother, his own brother, was a crossdresser at the time. So any repercussions against the LGBT community community, or I wouldn't say LGBT community back then, that was. That's too modern. It was more like the heretical lot at the time. He was afraid that these consequences would reach his brother. So he was became tolerant. And plus, 
He disliked the church a lot, and since Julie was a living embodiment of what the church detested, he invited her to her co- his court again and gave him full amnesty for all her covenant-related crimes. Now, during her stay, she became obsessed with the opera and singed for the king many a times. In fact, she was invited to many of the king's parties. On one such party, however, she lost favor with the king. During that night, she danced with one of the finest maidens in the ballroom at the time, making three young nobles jealous. So each of them challenged her to a duel, in which she, one by one, beat them all up, and then proceeded to return back to the party like nothing happened. Now, these duels were illegal at the time because the king who loved getting interfering with people's business, didn't like the fact that the duels were between the individuals themselves and not the king's court, where he could profit off of their disagreements. And so she had to flee to Belgium, or, or at the time, more the Netherlands. And while there, she fell in love with a young noble, but alas, say he died soon. And he was, she was allowed back into France again, where she wrote her own opera about herself, which she performed many a times. Eventually, however, she became tired of her own life, and for real this time, went back and took the vows for a covenant and died in the nunnery soon after, at the age of 35. Thanks for listening to our podcast.